Welcome to Rock and Land with your friends, Rainbow Geeks. Welcome to Rock and Land. This is how it will go. First we'll tell you a story, and then we'll rock your face off. First we'll tell you a story, and then we'll rock your face off. First we'll tell you a story. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. What did you just say? Aha, uh -huh, yes, this is the gist of what was just said. Anything is possible, even the impossible. Everything is possible in rock and land. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Rock Band Land's Broadcast Podcast. My name is Brian, I'll be your host today and forevermore. Today's episode is Canned Kids. That's right, just like tuna fish, just like cranberry sauce, just like peas, just like dog food, just like laughter on a sitcom, you too could find yourself canned if you don't watch your step. Today's show will begin inside the offices of William Sprinton, a word-casting agent who's looking for just the right words with which to begin this story. Yeah, hi. Thanks for coming. Thank uh, go you. ahead and make yourself comfortable. Okay. Um, what I'd like you to do is uh, I'd like to start this story with two fruits and an adjective. So okay. uh, I'd like you to sing some ideas for me. I'll sing. know when it's the right one. Right. Uh, just go on and sing two, two fruits and an adjective. Go ahead. Go ahead now. Okay, here goes. Uh, blueberry, gloomy, apricot, persimmon, mm -hmm. buoyant, coconut, cherry, unlucky, nectarine, lime, lazy pea. No, thank you. Mango, sociable fig, right. cantaloupe, reckless kiwi, yeah, grapefruit, phony, kumquat, mm. orange, smelly banana. Wait, what was that last one? Do the last, what the last one again? Orange, smelly banana. Oh yeah, that's that's the one. Okay, now get out of my office. Orange Smelly Banana Orphanage in San Jabo City was, as far as orphanages go, about average. There was a wood shop and an arts and crafts room, and the food was tolerable. Like most orphanages, though, the directors of Orange Smelly Banana constantly feared that their orphans would run away. Not because they loved them or even cared for them any more than they absolutely had to, but because their funding was on a per-kid basis. The more kids they had, the more money they got. Look at that room of kids. It's like a, like a living piggy bank. Oh. The kids were near constantly surveilled by the staff, and they were limited in what they could do. Any activity or object that might possibly aid an escape was denied to them. They were not allowed to climb trees or to climb on the playground, lest those skills be used to scale a wall or a fence, and running at the orphanage was strictly prohibited. Oh, that better not be running that I see. No, no, sir, that's just our legs moving faster than a normal pace and never touching the ground at the same time. Oh. They could make birdhouses in the wood shop, which the staff would hang on the grounds, but the kids were not allowed to use binoculars to watch the birds. Binoculars! Binoculars were seen as tools of adventurers, ones that inspired travel, and thoughts of travel were considered threats to the directors. San Jabo had an abundance of cats. Many families had six or seven that they called their own, and some had many more than that. And every lady was a cat lady. Who are you calling a cat lady? All of the orphans were allowed one stray cat as a pet. Even the kids with severe allergies had one. They couldn't, however, enter their cats into the annual San Jabo Tough Kitty Talent Show and Race, 
for were they to win, the directors feared that they'd use the money to flee. If it wasn't for this silly rule, a handful of kids might still be in the orphanage hoping for a home, instead of where they ended up. The San Jabo Tough Kitty Talent Show and Race always generated great interest among the orphans. The prize of $10,000 and 10,000 catnip treats seemed like an astronomical award to them. Some kids talked about it in a fantastical what-if sort of way, but no resident of Orange Smelly Banana had ever attempted to enter their cat. Even though they hadn't trained their kitties in any specific talents, a group of friends, four boys and four girls, believed that if they entered, at least one of their cats could win. They decided they would escape from the orphanage, train their cats, and enter the competition. They agreed, just as the directors feared, that if one of the cats won, they would split the winnings amongst themselves, the cats would split the bounty of catnip, and they'd all take care of one another outside of Orange Smelly Banana. The eight kids had all been at the orphanage since they were born. They knew of no other life. There was Christopher, Damon, Tabitha, Catherine, Eleanor, who the kids called Smudge because of the birthmark on her cheek that looked like an ink stain, Bjorn, Clara, and Cartwheel, who was actually Julian, but called Cartwheel because he couldn't do one. Uh, just in case you're listening, uh, birthmarks, well, they make you beautiful, and uh, cartwheels are, are trickier to do than they seem. That whole legs on top thing and spin around, it's a real tricky thing, R real tricky. They'd never met their parents, and together they formed the only family that they'd ever known. The oldest, Christopher, and the youngest, Smudge, were no more than three years apart. But somehow they all managed to parent one another. While they were supposed to be sleeping, the eight set to work on making crude tools in their bedrooms. They tied stones to sticks to be used as hammers, and they discovered that when two heavy-duty dustpans were glued together, face to face, and then tied to broken broom handles, that they made surprisingly good pickaxes. They carefully hid the tools in their rooms and quietly disassembled parts of their beds, stashing away springs and bed slats and anything else that seemed even remotely useful for future use. The kids were on constant watch for an opportunity to escape, all the while keeping their cats limber and well-fed for the upcoming competition. They knew how they intended to go, through the eerie moss-covered grate that rested at the edge of the playground. They just didn't know when their chance would come. So they kept as close to each other as they could without drawing attention to themselves, and they waited, pretending to just be going about their days like the other orphans. You better make your bed. No. 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 You better make your bed. No, I'm not going to make my bed. One afternoon, the orphan keepers were arguing with a resident who apparently hadn't made her bed up to the orange smelly banana standards. The girl struck one of the keepers and a fight broke out. Whistles blew and keepers came running. As all attention was on the scuffle, the eight kids with their cats under their arms and packs on their backs quietly left the main building and climbed through the moss-covered grate. Most all of the orphans were afraid of the grate. From the top of the slide, it looked like a monster's rotten mouth intent on consuming the orphans. But the little family had agreed that no matter how scary it might be, it was their best shot to escape. The grate was an old supply tunnel used by orderlies during the winter months from back when the... <laughs> 
Sometimes the narrator speaks in Chibaki. You just gotta go with it. The Grate was an old supply tunnel used by orderlies during the winter months from back when the orphanage was San Jabo's first and only hospital. When the hospital closed, the tunnel was sealed. The second building that it once had led to had long been demolished. At the end of the tunnel, the kids found a wall of dirt and debris from the old hospital building. It was there, slightly surprised by how unafraid they were, that they started digging. The cats purred around their legs as the spinning bed springs that they fashioned together acted like drills, and their homemade dustpan pickaxes chipped away at the soft and flaky stone. They dug, the tunnel grew, and like airline passengers with the window shades pulled, they were unaware of how far or how fast they were traveling. Within a few hours, they had dug well beyond the San Jabo city limits. In a few more, they had dug beyond the coast edge, and by the day's end, they had unknowingly dug themselves far out beneath the sea. Thinking that they were still not too far from the orphanage, and fueled by fears of being caught, they would have kept going, but the temperature began to rise rapidly, and Damon, who had recently been reading about the Earth's core, figured correctly that they must have miscalculated, and somehow were not too far from the magma below. Now it's, now it's time for a, um, a really good song. Um, this is a new song by Crimpled Tip Top and the Religious Dinner. The, the song's called Don't, Don't Die in the Magma. Don't die in the magma, don't die in the magma, don't die in the magma, don't keep digging down. They quickly redirected their energies and dug upwards. That was a smart move, that was a smart move, that was a smart move, at least that's what they thought. Oh, that's, that's a good song. The air cooled as they rose, and Catherine's axe pierced the spot that let the freezing water pour in. The kids and their cats were flushed out into the icy seas of the E West Pole. E West Pole, E West Pole. They had managed to dig themselves all the way from orange smelly banana to that odd frigid spot in the ocean where east meets west. When they surfaced, the kids frantically scrambled aboard an ice sheet with their soaked cats in hand. The ice was perfectly smooth and seemingly sturdy. It was about as wide as a small city block and went on for about a hundred yards or so. The kids celebrated their newfound freedom, and in the excitement, as they slid on the ice, they realized what talent they could teach their cats. Figure skating. They were certain that no one else at the San Jabo Tough Kitty Talent Show and Race would be entering their cats under this category. They were sure to win. The kids worked diligently, even as the kitties resisted, training them at first to crawl, and then slide on their paws, and then eventually to skate on their claws. In no time, the cats were performing tricks. They were doing Russian split jumps, fan spirals, death drops, and camel spins, all with ease. And when left on their own, the cats couldn't seem to get enough of cutting figure eight patterns. Around and around they went, cutting eights in the sun. Only when the sun did set, was the skating done. Oh boy, that was a nice tune. Uh, Crimple Tip Top and the Religious Dinner will be playing Thursday at, at Morton's Clump Factory. Uh, bring in your clumps. Uh, uh, leave with other clumps. Uh, just, just, it's all about the clumps at Morton's. Several days into their practice regiment, the kids and cats who were spread out over the ice sheet all froze when they witnessed a screaming cupcake rocket out of the water and run across the ice as fast as it could. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. (laughs) 
thank you for coming to the dinner. I hope you've enjoyed the quiche. Some have said it's to die for, and some others have said that others died for it, and you're eating people. I didn't say that. But before we can continue, we must tell you a story within a story story so that you understand what's happening in this story. Now, did he say story within a story story? I think he did. I think he said a story within a story story. A story within a story story. A story within a story. The Loveless Couple and the wedding cake. Paul and Clarabelle thought that they were in love. Not being ones for large festive occasions, they decided to get married privately on a cruise ship. When the big day came, while standing at the heart of the sea chapel altar in front of the chaplain, they realized that neither one of them actually wanted to get married. Worse yet, they realized that they didn't even like each other. Do you, Paul, take Clarabelle to be your lawfully wedded wife? Actually, um, I've been thinking, um, uh, Chaplain, she's kind of (laughs) nasty. She makes a a pasty clicking sound when she eats, and her her face, it just makes me want to throw up a a little bit in my mouth every time I I look at her. Okay, I see. That's peculiar. Let's continue, shall we? Clarabelle, do you take Paul to be your lawfully wedded Husband? Paul, I'm so glad that you said that, because I've been thinking too. You might be the worst person that I've ever met in my life. I've been I've been mistaking utter disgust for love. It's horrible. I don't want to marry you. I don't even want to see you again. So let me get this straight. You're not gonna kiss? The couple had a wedding cake waiting for them on a table near the altar. In a final shared act, They tossed their wedding cake overboard before going their separate ways. Paul ended up managing a battery store in his childhood hometown, and he remained single. Clarabelle became a stunt driver for television. She was featured in countless chase scenes on police dramas and married a mechanic from one of the shows. The wedding cake ended up in a patch of magical krill, not far from the E. West Pole. The cake and the krill were eaten by a passing common minky whale. It found the krill too fancy for its taste, and the cake was as bitter as the couple who it was originally intended for. The whale blasted the crustacean-cake combo from its blowhole and carried on in search of simpler fare. In doing so, the majestic beast created the sea cakes, harmless living cupcakes who travel in schools like fish, who prefer the water but can also live on land, and who rarely make themselves seen to people. Even though the planet and its oceans have been steadily cooling thanks to global cooling, the sea cakes and the magical krill both still continue to thrive. Please talk to your Congress donkey about global cooling, because it turns out... Global cooling is not so cool! It's not cool at all. It's cold. To conclude our story within a story story, a grandmother will give you a good old-fashioned yelling at, but in a whisper voice and with a smile on her face, so that no one can say that she's mean. Now you listen to me now. You sit down now and you listen to that story. You take those fingers out of your ears and you shut that. You just sit there and listen. Now give your grandma a kiss. The sea cake ran across the ice while screaming for help from an unseen threat. 
Even if they'd wanted to help, there wasn't anything that the orphan kids could have done. Before they could move towards the panic pastry, the dark waters next to the ice sheet parted as a huge shark thrust itself from the depths into the air with its gaping mouth open like some dumb violent machine and then crashed down onto the ice. The ice sheet crumbled apart where the shark fell through. The sea cake continued to run and the shark launched itself a second time and a third time. Each time the ice was further smashed. As the cupcake made its way across to the far edge of the ice sheet, with nowhere else to run, the shark circled for a moment before punching through from beneath the ice and into the air. While the shark soared, a black dot fell from the sky and a high-pitched squeak called out as a fire-breathing bat dive-bombed the fierce fish and roasted its snout. The shark recoiled, inverting itself repeatedly, spastically, before falling back into the sea and then disappearing. Greetings, kids, cats, and cupcake thingy. I am Trioke, the protector of the E West Pole. He couldn't have weighed more than three or four pounds, but the bat's weight was more than the damaged ice could handle. What remained of the ice sheet split apart in jagged and rough chunks, except for where the cats had cut figure eights. In those spots, the ice fell apart in neat drops, like the bottoms of elegant exclamation points. The kids, the cats, the sea cake, and the bat were all floating apart on their own separate ice sheets. Trioke leapt into action. He flew to the cats first and then to the kids, carrying them all to a larger, safer ice sheet. It wasn't as big as the one they'd been on, but it was just large enough to hold all 16 of them. The bat went for the sea cake last. He was tired, but that wasn't why he dropped her. He simply couldn't get purchase on her frosted top. The sea cake landed with a splash before swimming off, and then Trioke, exhausted from the rescue, crashed unconscious onto the ice with the kids. Is he gonna be okay? I think so. Let's just let him sleep for a little while. Small waves rippled on the edges of the ice. They were moving on the currents and the water slowly began to warm. At first, it was just by a degree or two, but then the temperature seemed to rise in greater increments. Their ice raft was once again threatened, melting beneath them. It was then that Smudge spotted land. Guys, look, an island! It was too far to swim, but they had to get there as fast as they could before the ice sheet disappeared. They grabbed their figure skater cats by the tails and they stiffened in fright and discomfort. This was a perfect result as the kids intended to use their cats as oars. They dipped him into the waters and pulled them alongside the dwindling ice as quickly as they could. The cats mewed and coughed as they surfaced in between strokes. The kids apologized to their kitties, but they kept pulling even through the translucent swirling patch of magical krill. With their skating claws extended, the cats swatted at the krill. Each managed to bite at and eat their share, even while being used as oars. The consumption of the magical little beasts affected the cats more than just a little. Their fur shed instantly and gills sprouted on their necks. Though their heads, tails, and legs remained in place, their bodies became fish-shaped. Scales appeared down their sides and fins rose from their backs. All the while, the frightened kids continued to row. They had almost made it to the beach. A few hundred yards from the shore, the ice thinned and could no longer maintain its cargo. The kids fell through and released their hold on their pets that were now more fish than cat. 
And in much the same way that the kids had fled from the orphan keepers, the cats took this opportunity to claim their own freedom. They quickly swam away, abandoning their orphan owners who were tumbling in the increasing waves, while the resting tree oak floated alongside them on a tiny teardrop-shaped piece of ice. Eight kids and the unconscious bat eventually washed up on the beach of a deserted island. They were still coughing and spitting up water when a lonely trungalashith sheep stepped out from the wooded edge beyond the beach. It walked directly towards them, stopped a few feet away, and introduced itself. Hiya, I'm Marty, and you must be wet. Bah, bah, bah. There aren't many trungalashith sheep left in the world. They're known for their expansive, thin, bony plates that fan up from their backs like a mohawk of swords and make them hard to shear. Trungalashiths have notoriously unpleasant dispositions and odors, and are among the most stubborn of all sheep. For these reasons, and because their meat tasted like capers and bad breath, the Trungalashith sheep were largely bred and hunted out of existence. Marty had washed up on the island after a container ship he was on capsized. Many of the ship's goods also floated up on the beach with him. Deep in the woods, he enjoyed a comfortable life with, among other amenities, a solar-powered generator, a laser disc player, and a smoothie machine. The only thing the lonely Trungalashith sheep lacked was a companion, and with the arrival of the kids, that was going to change, whether they liked it or not. Are you thirsty? The kids nodded. Marty turned and ran back into the woods with his spiky plates waving in the air above him like an unsteady picket fence in the wind. Cartwheel caught a whiff of the sheep and crinkled his nose. Ugh, he smells worse than the bathroom at the orphanage. Quiet, Cartwheel, he might hear you. Marty returned a minute later with a large jug of fresh water for the kids. They thanked him and he asked if they were hungry. How about a bite to eat now? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? The kids said that they were famished and he smiled wide and ran off again. This time, Marty returned dragging eight large canisters behind him that were tied together with a rope. He set them upright in front of the kids and told them that if they climbed in, they would find a deep bed of fresh spinach. And at the very bottom, each canister held a magic pebble that would grant them their wishes. The kids had barely eaten since leaving the orphanage, and though spinach would normally be pushed to the side of their plates, under the circumstances, it seemed like the world's most delicious food. On top of that, after seeing a living cupcake flee a shark attack, having been rescued by a talking, fire-breathing bat, and having watched as their very own cats turned into fish, the kids now firmly believed in magic. When the talking, spiky, stinky sheep said the cans held food and magic stones, they dove in headfirst without reservation. They'd eat, find the stones, wish for their cats back, and then attend and win the San Jabo Tough Kitty talent show and race. There was spinach at the base of the cans, a lot in fact, enough to feed each of them for years, and on which Marty had sprinkled ample amounts of preservatives that he'd acquired from another abandoned container. Once the kids were inside, the trungula sheath sheep quickly flipped the lids on the cans with his horns and then snapped them shut. There were no magic pebbles inside. The only wishes the kids would be making were the wishes to be freed from the cans. The sheep had planned to store the kids in the woods. Whenever he got particularly lonely, Marty figured he could just pop open a can of kid and have a friend for however long that one would last. When one spoiled or ran away, he'd simply crack open another can. With eight kids, he figured it'd be at least two or three years before he'd run out, and by then, any number of other creatures might wash up and keep him company. The first two kids, Cartwheel and Clara, were sealed without a yelp, 
But as he went down the line, the other kids began to realize what was happening, and they shouted. Their screams woke Trioke, who foggily witnessed the canning of the kids. The weary protector bat took to the sky unnoticed, and just as Marty was pulling the cans into the woods, Trioke swooped down and blasted the sheep with fire. Marty's wool ignited like a marshmallow on a six-year-old stick at a campfire, and Marty ran in circles, barking and baying in pain. The weather offered the beast some relief as a tropical storm rolled in with its dark clouds and swirling winds. The palm trees whipped as the spontaneous rain fell sideways, extinguishing the trungulus sheath's sheep. He smoldered as the seas churned and the waves began to pummel the shore. Though fierce, the little bat was no match for the winds. Tree oak was tossed and tumbled, and he lost sight of the canned kids, just as the waves crested over them and pulled them far out to sea. The canned kids spun in the waves for the duration of the storm. When it passed, the cans were amazingly still floating close together. In the darkness, the kids were once again at the mercy of the currents, somewhere in the middle of the ocean, miles from Marty's beach, and significantly farther from San Jabo, where the tough kitty talent show and race was getting underway. Stop. 